You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis, joined for this episode by Dr. Vanessa Parada. She's with Macquarie University in Australia. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yep, I'm glad we could work this out in our, our much different time schedules. Uh, you know, it's like 5 p.m. here on the eastern U.S., 8 a.m. there in Sydney. So thank you very much. Um yeah, I definitely I came across your work through social media and uh, you know that great those great platforms, and I uh, was really interested in a lot of the stuff that you focus on. Um, but in general, you know, you seem to be very into the whales and dolphins and kind of these big marine mammals. Why why are you so into them? I've always had a fascination with them, and I, I can't kind of pinpoint a moment. But I always remember as a young kid that I just love these animals and maybe I often say to people it was the movie Free Willy that inspired me and like many <laughs> other children of my generation to want to be involved in some sort of cetacean which is a collective term for whales, dolphins or porpoises and so yeah ever since then I, it's the way they look, it's the way they, they're mammals like you and I but they live in the ocean so they're air breathing animals that have adapted so well to an aquatic environment which is so cool and if you've ever been next to a whale or a dolphin, more so a whale because of their size, yeah. it just gives you such an amazing, like an exhilarating experience and feeling that you're next to this powerful animal that is at the same time so gentle. So there are a number of reasons. I got a couple points. So I uh, I lived in Hawaii for like five years and uh, was lucky enough to kind of be in with a couple, a couple of humpback whales. I was like the only person around other than my friend on the boat. And, you know, it was just totally amazing. You know, the one turned and looked at me with its eye that's like bigger than my head. And it was looking right at me, you know, and I'm like, they don't eat people. They don't eat people. <laughs> um, but it, that was that was super cool. And yeah, I've been in with the dolphins a whole bunch. And uh, it's, it's amazing stuff. I think a dolphin is like my favorite animal, period. Um, what's the difference between a dolphin and a porpoise? Oh, I always get asked this question. There's, it's it's the anatomical difference. So they're first of all they have different teeth. So porpoise teeth are more spade-like, and dolphin teeth are conical, so kind of cone-shaped. Okay. So think teeth first of all, and also the appearance of most porpoises. They're kind of they're beakless. So if you think of Flipper, your iconic dolphin, which mm -hmm. is a bottle, they have this very um, elongated rostrum, so the mouth area. So they're they're the two kind of differences. Okay. That's on Making. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So there's a couple areas of research, things you've done that I'm super interested in and want to talk to you about. Um, I think one of these things I saw before I made the connection that it was you that was involved with this, and that's using drones to, to fly out over the ocean, fly over whales, and connect, collect what comes out of that blowhole, which is termed whale snot, I guess. Um, yeah, so what's that about? How did you... Uh, get involved with that and come up with the idea to to use drones and and conduct that research well that is such a major component of my phd which is and it's really a passion project so the idea when i started my phd early around 2015 so a couple of years ago now and at the time drone technology was really coming into the space of just everything drones were really accessible Mm -hmm. and they were really hot you could see amazing footage with drones and 
at the same time, I was very fortunate to be around some really, well, I would say world-leading drone experts that are based here in Australia. And so we were out on a boat off Sydney and we kind of <laughs> were watching whales and it just was perfect because we thought, wouldn't it be great to combine the use of drones as a non-invasive way of studying whales? And so from that, I then did some reading as it was as you do in your PhD, which my PhD, for those who don't really know, is more conservation-based. Okay. And the conservation yeah. applications is something that I'm really, really passionate about, like trying to actually make a difference for conserving these animals. Mm. And so through the reading of the literature, there was at the time looking at whale health, which is something I was really interested in. And many years ago, so I think one of the earliest, well, actually not really too long ago, a publication came out in 2010, which looked at the use of collecting blow, which was this whale spray that you see as a whale comes to the surface to breathe, which we used to think was just water, but rather it's not. Uh. It's this, yeah, it's this whole juicy biological mixture of health information. So kind of like if you pick your nose <laughs> and you put rub your finger on a Petri dish or some sort of substrate to collect bacteria, you will find a lot of interesting things from there. So huh. is my, myself talking with the right people, reading the literature at the right time, and then coming up with this novel thought process of, you know, coming together with industry, science and technology to create something great. So from that, we were able to, I was able to use the idea of collecting health information via the use of blow samples of the animals that we have here in Australia. And then, using my knowledge of whales to combine with someone who had great drone technology knowledge, mm. which was that of the company I was working with here in Australia, which is Heligai Scientific. Okay. And we're, we've got a great collaborative partnership, which is fantastic, which has allowed us to develop these custom-built drone technology. So these drones that essentially have a Petri dish on top of them. Yeah. So the Petri dish is the, the, the collection bit for the whale snot. And the idea is that the dish is shut. And so as the drone flies over to the whale to collect a whale snot sample, the dish is opened and then it flies through the sample, hopefully collecting whale snot, which looks a lot like water. It's kind of droplet-like. And then the dish is shut, securing the sample to end to minimise contamination. And so the idea of collecting whale snot, because many of your listeners are probably like, well, why do we want to know about it in the first place? <laughs> right. Uh, is it just an excuse to fly drones over a whale? Well, rather, it's a really great way, a non-invasive step towards studying whales. And it's one of the first steps to collecting baseline information of bacteria living in whale lungs. Because in the past, to be able to collect health information from whales, we were limited to whales that we'd either killed, which was simply unethical, and those whales that were hunted, in which case, uh, sorry, I said that uh, whales that had stranded. Yeah. And uh, their health is usually compromised when they strand. So this method is allowing us to collect biological samples from free-swimming whales, which we would consider maybe healthy or, or not healthy, depending on how they look or maybe their status, and allows us to collect this information over time, which might be able to act as an early monitoring or detection tool for changes in population health, which given this population off Australia, the East Coast humpback whale population is growing at around 10% each year. So, oh, wow. yeah, there's a host of reasons why the technology has come in, why we want to ask these kind of questions. And then most of all, by using uh, the humpback whale population of Sydney, which is a very healthy population, 
we can compare using this method the whale snot that we find here to other whale populations around the world. Very cool. So when did uh, when did you start doing this? Like, uh, you know, when was kind of like the first trial? So it was probably 2015 that we – it was probably 2016. Okay. And the, before we had any drone fly next to a whale, it's very important that we had to ensure that we had – well, first of all, our drone was ready to go. So the drone technology, because we had such a limited budget on my PhD <laughs> budget, which is fine because I'm very grateful to have any funds to do anything. And this enabled myself and my drone pilot to become creative. And because that of that amount, we got so creative that we developed this drone that was essentially had none of the bits and bobs that would make it easy for someone like myself to fly. So my flying skills were out of the question here. So <laughs> there's no GPS, there's no any system to warn you that you're flying too close to a wall or you're about to hit the ground. There's nothing of that. It's operated in pure manual mode. Yeah. And we had trials. I pretended to be the whale by holding a hose and <laughs> holding a sprinkler. <laughs> so wait, the, whale to, the, the, the drone to fly through the hose. It was kind of, it was so much fun. We had sure. So that we were using to work out where the spray would likely go with the, the rotation of the propellers. Mm. And that moment where we actually went out and we had our drone fly over a whale, that moment was so special. I remember it was just off Bondi Beach. Actually, I don't think I've ever spoken about this. Yeah, well, so it was off Bondi Beach and it was a beautiful winter's day because the whales migrate from Antarctica to northern Queensland each year. Okay. And they, during that time, they migrate past Sydney, which is one of their major cities, well, the largest city they will pass. And it's it was such a nice day and they're travelling, this one individual is travelling this migratory corridor, so we have lots of whales travel through. And we decided we'd take the chance. We worked out its behaviour, so it was coming up every now and then. So the whales have a downtime and an uptime. The downtime mm. is the period of time which they're underwater and then they can come back up. And the, you can actually kind of work this out when they're migrating. So, yes, that whale's been down for about five minutes now. It's due to come up. And it, you can become quite good at it if you have a textbook whale, in my opinion. So a whale, <laughs> you've predicted it's going to do and then hopefully do the same thing. So that all happened. And then we decided to launch the drone, and I was very nervous because we had an expensive GoPro camera on the drone. This is a drone that has no GPS. We made sure that we had civil aviation the, the, mm. in Australia, all the airspace is covered by CASA, which is the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Okay. And we also animal ethics to do this research, and we also had scientific licensing from the New South Wales government, which enabled us to work within the space. So there's all these different things we had in place, which is good for the animals. We have to have protection. Sure. And as well, just to be able to publish anything, you must make sure that you have these types of things in place. Otherwise, your research is won't be looked at, won't be looked at at all. So yes, yeah, so we, the drone is launched into the air. The whale's moving predictably, which is great. <laughs> that moment came where, because the drone has a camera that you can see what the drone's seeing, okay. and obviously at all times I'm watching the whale and the drone. So that was my main priority. When we must maintain a line of sight at all times. So yeah. the, the the drone flew out over 200 meters away from the vessel. The whale's in the distance. It's getting further and further. <clears throat> excuse me, away from our boat. 
Bondi's to the left of us, Bondi Beach that is for your listeners, and the whale comes up to take a breath, then the drone pilot Alistair is in the right time and just lowers the drone. The Petri dish at this stage didn't have a flip lid, so okay. that's this is a very early form of our drone, So, which means that the sample that we're likely to have gotten is subject to contamination as it mm. flies through. Hence, we didn't use the sample that we collected okay. for analysis. And then the, the drone, yeah, the drone went down. The whale took a breath. The drone went down, collected the sample. And the, this, Alistair, once he collected the sample, the drone came back up above the whale and just kind of, Alistair was kind of taking it in. I was so excited on the boat right. that I tears. I was crying. <laughs> You're like, we got it. Yeah, all that work, right? <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, Alistair, because he had to maintain focus on the drone, because we had a drone in the air still. Yeah. So our sample was still there, vulnerable, and the drone was still there. We had to get that drone back. He, so couldn't, the- he couldn't, like, properly celebrate in the moment. He had to contain himself for a little bit, right? And then he's me so excited. I was just, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is this is what we've been working so hard for has actually become a reality. And then the drone comes into the vessel, so we have a procedure in place. So when the drone comes in, we stand inside the cabin of the vessel we're working at and the drone pilot is there. So safety is always our main priority when working for doing any of this type of thing at sea. The drone is lowered into the vessel and it's safe, and then that's when celebration happened. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's and that's good stuff. Yeah, it was so fun. It was yeah, great. And yeah. And then so the so the flip lid was an adaptation that you came up with, like a way to again protect the sample, the integrity of the sample. You're like, let's get this mechanism on there. And you can obviously op- operate that remotely when it's time to go, trigger that to open, trigger to close, kind of thing. Yes, and Alistair, the drone pilot, or whoever's operating the drone, has control over that. There has been cases that I've worked on projects of sampling whale stomp in other parts of the world where there's been the drone pilot and someone independent of the drone pilot opening and closing the lid. That is not as successful, in my opinion, just because the timing, you know, when you're flying or when you're driving the car, you can anticipate the moment when something's going to happen and then it can be more effective. And the idea sure. is that the drone, the, the Petri dish is only open for a really short amount of time just to collect the sample and then it's shut. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what comes out of the whale? It's not just, you know, they take in water and they shoot the water out. That's, um, it's, that is part of it. It's collecting other stuff from inside the whale or that actually is, is something that's been in that whale for a little bit longer than that particular breath or what what's what's the process there biologically that creates that um it's not just water passing through like you said no so the whale kind of has they have two nostrils well the humpback whale that is sperm whales have two nostrils but only the left nostril is visible so the other nostril is not so there's another little fact so they've got these two nostrils and they kind of open up um you know you know you think of um you know, opening and closing your hands really rapidly. Mm. Okay. But what happens is they're so good at exhaling air. So they're because they come up to the surface, they're so quick of exhaling and then rapidly taking in air. It is phenomenal. It's kind of like <sighs> that quick. And an animal yeah. that's in the water for, say, a, well, a couple of minutes can just do that and then will come up and take a couple of breaths and then go down. So it's estimated that around 90% of the air comes out of the animal so they can, of their lung capacity and wow. then they can re- 
in something like 0.3 of a second. Wow. It's really, it's really and quick. They've got, and they've got good-sized lungs, right? This is a whale we're talking about. So that's a lot of actual air. That's amazing. Yeah. So someone of my size, so I'm about nearly six foot, I have a lung capacity of around, and likely yourself too, around six liters or so. Humpback whale lung capacity can be over a thousand liters. Wow. This is a massive amount of air in an animal. It's a big mammal. So we're talking of an animal that I work on. It's 17 meters in length and 40 tons. So that's a massive animal. So yeah, in what what comes out of the lungs? What comes out of the nose, rather, is is information from the lungs. So you've got epithelial cells, like cells from the lung wall. You might have mucus or mucus. And you in, inside of that, you've got bacteria or bacterial DNA. Um, you've got lipids, proteins. So there's a whole host of things. But the reason that we see the water or that visible shooting of that is because a humpback whale, for example, in front of their two nostrils, they've got kind of like a raised bit of the body, which is known as a splash guard. Mm. And so as the animal is underwater, their nose is actually, there's there's a, like a kind of a pooling of water as they mm. come up. So you bring the body up out of the water, there's going to be water that's coming off. But as a result of that, water's being pushed from the surface of their nostrils up. So that's why you can see it. And I've been to areas in Antarctica. So in Antarctica, because the environment is so cold, you know, on a cold day when you breathe and you can see your breath. Sure. It's like that. Wow. So cool. So um, have there been any early findings or really interesting stuff that you've learned by being able to gather these samples and, and look at them? Yeah. So we've found... First of all, we co- we've collected baseline bacterial DNA from these whales. So this is a collection of bacteria living in the whales of northward migrating humpback whales off Australia in the East Coast population. So this is the first step towards collecting a library, in other words, of what are the types of bacteria we're likely to find in these animals? And would we consider this from a relatively healthy or a sick whale mm. in, in very general terms? So we've described a pool of information of bacterial DNA found in these whales that are free swimming from Antarctica. This will then go to the world, the more global library of information that we're now collecting with scientists around the world of the types of bacteria that we've got in these whales compared with other whale bacteria. So we're essentially comparing whale snot around the world. <laughs> yeah. And we found from that these whales are carrying similar bacteria to other whales around the world. We've also found that they've got similar bacteria to bacteria found on sharks mm. and other fish in the ocean, which is likely to be the case because there's a lot of different microbes floating around the ocean. And the most exciting discovery that we found is that these whales are carrying viruses. Huh. And this is a super, super cool step because to our knowledge, this is the world's first or the only study to have found viruses via whale snot through the collection of drones. So drones have potentially use for surveying virological data. And that's super. So, for example, there we've uh, found a a virus that is associated with an ice shelf down in Antarctica, which, surprise, surprise, these animals are feeding in areas around Antarctica. And it's just kind of giving us that more 
that link that these animals are capable of carrying viruses across the ocean and which gives rise to the potential use of whales as mobile monitors of ocean health. Mm. It's just so bizarre that we're essentially studying the world's smallest organism from the largest animals. Ah, I like I like that. Look at all the potential like uh, you know ways you can go with this. So many different angles and so and so much potential. Uh, has the use of drones in this way uh, kicked in any other places around the world? Is anybody you know copying your approach? Well, thankfully, I haven't seen the flip lid um, division the, the product of that on any other drone yet, but. Thankfully, we have this research published, so people can do it as long as they reference our paper. And so that's that's the main thing. And the idea of science is that you want it to be collaborative. You want other people to do good for whales, and that's what we're all here as scientists, to do just that. So if people are going to do it, that's fine. That's great as long as we all work together to create a bigger and better knowledge base of ways that we can help monitor populations in the future and potentially detect changes in health that might be able to safeguard smaller populations, for example, like the terrible situation in, in the Northern Hemisphere with the North Atlantic right whale, where their numbers are so low, it's not very good. And one of the main reasons is anthropogenic activities such as shipping and fishing gear entanglement. But yeah, so the, the whole drones have essentially allowed researchers to collect information from whales in a much safer capacity and also advances in technology like DNA sequencing has enabled us to really refine the amount by collecting smaller amounts of information, allowing us to do more with that and answer bigger and better questions. Sure. You mentioned uh, the impact of, of shipping activity on, on whales, and I know that was another area of, of your research that I really was curious about. Again, I saw this article someplace, didn't even know the connection to you, but so you're, you're making all this impact. Um, so could you talk about that and, and looking at kind of, there's so much shipping that goes on around the world, right? It's just, in, it's crazy. I don't know if people really realize how many ships are out there and how they're always out there and um, the, the highways that they create across the ocean. Um, what did you take a look at when it comes to how they, they impact, um, you know, the big marine mammals? And I think even not just mammals, maybe you looked at like their impact on sharks and stuff too? Or Yeah, we, we coined a term which we refer to as marine giants. Okay. And so marine giants is the great whales and sperm whales as well, so the big baleen whales like blue whales. But we also looked at whale sharks and basking sharks. And so we put this under a, an umbrella for this paper, at least my recent paper, which is referred to as marine giants. And the reason we've selected these individuals or these species rather is because they're all vulnerable to shipping activity because of biological traits. So for example, a whale needs to come to the surface to breathe. So when you're at the surface, you're potentially vulnerable to shipping activity. And also due to their large size, they're just a, you know, the bigger you are, the more susceptible you potentially could be to a big vessel. In addition to that, basking sharks and whale sharks, and I'm not a shark expert just for the record, but the literature I've read in collaborations with shark experts is that these animals will come to the surface at time either to feed and that for whales as well whales will feed at the surface some of them and also to bask in the sun and to warm mm. up mm. so yeah these animals all uh, at the surface they all have potential impact to be impacted by vessel activity now the the idea of vessel activity is a real big problem for these marine giants because often where they occur shipping occurs 
and we all know that shipping is found throughout the world's oceans. So that is a potential impact. And the way what we've done in this paper is we've looked at shipping, we've looked at shipping lanes. So your listeners or viewers might be familiar with, you know, the shipping route goes between this country and this country and transport goods. In fact, over 80% of the global transport of, of goods is done by a ship. So the computer you're watching this on, you're listening to this device, or whatever you're wearing, whatever you're sitting on right now, has probably come to you via ship in some capacity. Mm. This is a big thing for all of us. And as a result, this means that ships are, as I said before, present within many of the environments that these marine giants are active in. And so what we thought of is I've collaborated with a road ecologist, Professor Bill Lawrence from James Cook University in Australia, and he is an expert at this. He looks at the impacts of roads in the terrestrial environment. Hmm. So the roads that we drive in, you might not think it, and I, I never really actually thought about it, but they have impacts on the environment. So the actual destruction of the environment to create that road, the usage of cars on the roads, acoustic pollution, you've got chemical pollution, petrol fumes, all of this next to the road has a potential impact on the environment. And so what we've done here, and this is really novel and really exciting about this work, is we've essentially taken the idea of road ecology, which studies the impacts of roads in the terrestrial world, and apply that in the marine world by using shipping lanes as what we refer to as marine roads. Okay. So we can take some of these ideas of how we study terrestrial roads to help study marine roads to help mitigate the impacts of shipping on marine animals. Yeah. And what did you, uh, did it, what came out of the research? What kind of were like the main findings? Because uh, it wasn't just saying, hey, we're going to, this is an approach you can take to it, but you actually kind of uh, learned a little bit out of doing it? Yeah. So we essentially created a framework using some of the ideas I developed from the study of road ecology in the terrestrial world. So we've got this framework which looks at monitoring within the marine road, so looking at the impacts that ships have directly on animals, so that, for example, ship strike is a big thing, and ways at which we can try and prevent that is by looking at where animals are likely to occur and in some cases around the world, which has been done really successfully, altered shipping areas to minimise interactions with animals. So, for example, the North Atlantic right whale, there are zones which avoid these animals in seasonal area, in, in certain times of the year rather. And then another big finding is looking at the, the area around or outside the marine road, directly outside the marine road as, as transition zones. So we do know that the impact is not only occurring within the, the shipping channel or marine road, but rather they have a potential to impact whales and, and other marine giants such as whale sharks and basking sharks outside of the marine road. And an example of that is acoustic pollution. So ships create sound yeah. and sound is obviously greatest at the source but they also sound can can transmit for many, many kilometres away past the source. And so that has a potential to acoustically pollute whale environments, which for some whales, they heavily use sound to communicate and that mm. can mask or and clutter the available space for communicating. Just like it would be cluttering, you and I having a talk now, there'd be a massive ship coming and <laughs> we wouldn't be able to chat. 
can't hear you what huh yeah (laughs) so that this is some of the stuff you talked about where you're you know taking your science and your research and and applying it to actual conservation which is awesome yeah and the thing is with the work that i do i don't want to be against say for example the shipping industry i don't want to be pinpointing the problem on anyone in particular but what we've got to do is realize that we as scientists don't want any whales or any marine giants to be hit. The shipping industry doesn't want that either because that costs them a lot of money. And also it's an inconvenience for their transport and, and their movement times and it would just do a lot of impact. But also governments and international protection, so the International Whaling Commission, mm. people who join efforts internationally and also nationally to protect whales, we all have an obligation, especially here in Australia, to do our bit to protect animals and so our government is going to work towards ways to potentially in- minimise these interactions. So it's for a common goal that we all want this. And I used to work on mitigating entanglement in fishing gear, so whales would be caught in fishing gear, which <clears throat> is a big challenge, and it's a challenge around the world, I must add. Mm. And one prime example is the vaquita porpoise in Mexico, which is I think there's only a, about 10 or so of the recent readings I've seen, which is terrible oh. in porpoises are getting the vaquita are getting caught in fishing gear which is terrible so at the same time the people who are fishing probably don't want to have these animals interacting with fishing gear but no one does the animals don't government fishing industry scientists so that's another example of how we need to come up with strategies to work together collaboratively if it's possible to do more and so this Shipping paper in particular highlights the need to do just that. Cool. The other area of research that you just touched on and mentioned earlier is this idea of entanglements, right? And um, I think you've done some work around like whale alarms um, that can be used to help prevent entanglement in fishing gear. Um, What's what's this next cool project here? (laughs) Well, this is actually one I worked on my in my uh, masters. Okay. Cool project I came from, <laughs> but there's always <laughs> to do more. And thankfully, I have an example of what I'm talking about. And if your listeners are listening and can't see it, that's fine. There's a there's been many ways to try and prevent entanglement in fishing gear for cetaceans. So again, whales, dolphins, and porpoises, and they do get entangled in fishing gear. And so one of the ways, and early ways, there was a gentleman called John Lane, and he was fantastic in this in this field of trying to prevent entanglement so he came up with a few ideas of physical noises Mm. so he i think there was one an early device known as a clanger where there was this it was just a simple device that was placed on fishing gear and as the tides moved or the ocean would move it would make a sound so that would hopefully deter animals or at least alert them to fishing gear presence and there was a, there was also another one that was a reflecting device that hopefully animals would see the device and be more alert. But on more more recently, there's been the development of whale alarms or pingers. Some of your listeners might be familiar with. And so the device I'm holding in my hand for your listeners is a small device that can fit in the palm of my hands. It's probably about oh, a couple of centimeters long, and it's called a in this case a whale pinger. And the idea is that it has a little section at the top uh, on, and the bottom where it can be deployed and attached to fishing gear. And it creates an acoustic tone, so like a three kilohertz tone in this case. We can hear it because our acoustic levels are within the range of what a whale is likely to hear, which we don't know 100% what that is. But 
we essentially we can hear what they sing right so there's that overlap and it also will have a, a light for well potentially attracting it but for alerting fishing gear, fishermen or fisherwomen to where the alarm is placed in other words and so the idea is that you can place this type of device on a type of fishing gear in which case for my research i trialed a single single use scenario of like a lobster or a crab pot where there's just one source of fishing gear with a little device down the bottom which captures the crabs or the lobsters and has a single line going to the surface and that unfortunately does entangle whales so the idea is that you place it on the net and it, it acoustically alerts that tone and hopefully the whales will swim past it and go oh there's something there and then oh we might move away from it but I trialled this off Sydney and this is a published research and what we found is we, we had this scenario where we had the single fishing gear type set in the middle of the migratory corridor off Sydney so the whales were going past it in the northern migration and I used a theodolite which is a surveyor's tool and if your listeners have ever heard of or seen a surveyor you know using Pythagoras theorem working out the triangulation of where they are and I used that to work out where a whale was in relation to my position so it's really cool i never thought i'd be doing that and so what we did is we tracked or i tracked whale movements going along the coast past this device but in two treatments so when the alarm was on versus off and as the observer i was blind so i didn't know if the alarm was on or off okay that was really important to do and so we we did all these treat we did all the testing over a period of a couple of years and we found that these whales when the alarm was on and off made absolutely no difference oh. yeah i know and, and, and <laughs> unfortunately some of the tracks that we have the whales go right over the alarm when the period of it being on and i oh. had the the luxury of working with a fantastic acoustician in fact in fact probably the world's one of the world's in my opinion best acousticians his name is uh, douglas cato and he's fantastic he's very well renowned here in in, in australia as well and he has I was working on this project with him and he said, you know, the environment is becoming so acoustically noisy, the ocean environment. And uh -huh. it might just be a case that the alarms are simply too too faint or they're just another addition to the another. acoustic environment. Right, right. Hey, well, this yeah. is, you, you know, this is how science goes, right? It's trial right. and error and experimentation and learning and moving on to something else. So, uh, yeah, can't feel too bad about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> The thing is, it was a really good study to raise the awareness of these devices and also hopefully do more with them, to yeah. study to them and trial them in different scenarios. So in addition to, you know, being a, a, a researcher and being focused on conservation, um, one of your priorities is being a, a science communicator. And, uh, you know, you talk about that on your different platforms. Um, why is that important to you? What what does that mean and why is that important to you? Well, I didn't realize the impact of science communication would have throughout my PhD and it's been really, really important. And so my PhD journey has allowed me to discover the need and the importance of communicating science. And for some people, I remember when I first started doing this, some people thought, oh, maybe it's you know why would you do that or is it just self-promotion but rather it's actually not it's really important for scientists especially scientists doing research to allow their research to be known depending and i must admit there are some projects which are confidential and you can't in that case that's fine and understandable 
But if you're doing research with government funds or publicly funded work, it's really important for people to know where their money is going and what types of research is going on. So for my work, it really lended itself to being communicated. So the idea of collecting health information from whales non-invasively is a massive step towards conservation aims and practices around the world. So why not tell people that we're actually doing this? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, technology is a very growing industry and it's fun and exciting. So by my, by me and my team essentially telling people what's going on, hey, we've done this research, this is what we've found. We've also been able to observe whales via this way and it was, it's a story. So essentially science communication is a storytelling service to people and if you're interested then you're likely to engage with that it's been very very powerful for myself for this work and it's allowed myself to have the conversations that what we're having right now to chat and talk about this across the world and in doing so we've actually we've raised some really important issues that whales face that your listeners might not be aware of so that's the steps that science communication can allow myself and yourself what you're doing essentially as a science communicator as well take to make science accessible to people and that's what I love doing and it's fun and I've met so many people around the world doing it yeah sure I mean science is how we understand the world right science is how we improve the world and uh by sharing what's going on in science with people in a way that they can understand just you know especially that non-scientists can understand it just uh it helps people to understand the world around them, to understand what's going on, to understand the impact they have, how they can make a difference. Um, and you know that not all scientists can communicate that well, right? I mean, I, I also work a lot in a world of engineers and they same, same kind of thing. So if you are a scientist or an engineer uh, that can communicate, you got to use that tool for good, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's a really good... It is okay not to be a good communicator. I mean, we don't, what, what does make a good communicator? It's maybe just the things that we like. And that's okay because as scientists and what, engineers, whatever you may be, teachers, you are not formally trained as a communicator. It's using those other skills that, or driving, my passion drives a lot of what I do. So I'm really interested in these type of things. So why not allow others to see this kind of thing and get it out there and I found so many other people are also interested in similar things yeah. and if you do have someone that you know is potentially really good at communicating why not collaborate with them or ask them hey how do you think I could get my research out here or how do you think we could best tell people about this thing that we're developing to potentially save lives like mm. you know and there are people now in universities that are devoted to science communication it's really helpful if you're a journalist and you have science backing and you're a science communicator so that there's lots of different avenues that I've discovered post PhD that I can potentially work on and have fun with. Yeah, there's a lot more of that happening, which is great. Um, you know, my deal is like, I'm more, I'm a communicator. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be a scientist or to be an engineer or, or something like that. So I just like to create platforms for, for people to be able to share information. Um, one of the other things you talk a lot about is is being a woman in STEM, right? In science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, what does that What does that mean to you? That's really important. It is really important, and it's kind of goes beyond just that. Oh, you're a woman in science, you know this whole <laughs> hoo ha. It's super important, and the reason I say that is because I'm an auntie, and I have 
nephews and nieces and it's so great for them to see what I'm doing because it allows them to aspire to a lot of different things rather than just traditional routes that women might take. And also in the process of doing my work, I've had people come up to me and say, can you speak to my daughter? Can you show her? I want, I want her to see what you're doing. And I find that like I really, I remember that. And it's really kind of, it, it impacts me because it's, it's really this motherly instinct allowing, providing the opportunities to show the opportunities to children that, hey, you can do, you can do this or you can drive boats. And I remember asking my nephew to drive a boat, uh, to draw a boat rather, not drive, he's a little too little. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, say, can you drive a boat, can you draw a boat? And he drew a, a male driver and, uh, and he also I, I bought him this boat and it had a female driver. It just coincidentally had a female figure. And he's like, why is there a woman driving the boat? And I was just like, my gosh, he's only really little and saying these things. Right. So it's all about changing the per- perception and going beyond the stereotype and showing that women can have very dynamic roles in whatever they choose to do, which is really empowering. And it's and it's not to put down the males because males should be able to do this as well. It's all about equal equal job opportunities and having fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's plenty of jokes or funny things in movies where they show a male nurse. And there, and why is that? What's what's wrong with that? Why is that something unusual? Yeah. You know, like um, yeah. I think the last thing I want to ask you about, you know, and it's apparent through our conversation here. But I mean, as I was watching different videos and seeing stuff, you know, you bring a ton of enthusiasm and energy to it. Um, yeah. Where do where do you? Where do you get that from? Why do you why do you why do you put that out there in that way? Well, first of all, thank you. I don't know. I think it's when I'm. I think when I ever speak about something that I really love, I just have this. It ignites me just to go bring a lot of energy to it. And yeah, I feel really energized when I speak about something I'm really passionate about. Yeah. So I think my research has provided this platform, and much like the avenues and the outlets that you are creating right now, are providing a platform to spread messages and to share with the world ideas and to highlight issues that are currently going on, especially coming back to the conservation issues that I've spent much of my life working on. Yeah, sounds fantastic. If people want to uh, check out your work or follow you, where can they where can they do that? Yeah, so the first port of call is my website, so vanessaperotta.com, just.com. And I'm on there, you'll have all my social media, but I can tell you indiv- independently. So Twitter is Vanessa Perotta, So V-A-N-E-S-S-A-P-I-R-O-T-T-A. And Instagram is the same as Twitter, Vanessa Perotta. You can also follow me on Facebook at Dr. Vanessa Perotta. And then LinkedIn as well at Dr. Vanessa Perotta. Fantastic. Good stuff. Well, I will continue following you and seeing what kind of fun research comes out. I hope others do too. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me and great work. You're in the water loop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.